Welcome to the 34-Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take with, the adventure us. with us. With us. With us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome everyone back to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we are going to be continuing our series on classical studies. We call it Classical Studies 101. Just want to remind you that whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on or how you're listening to it, if you would be so kind as to leave us a lovely rating or some lovely comments so we know how much you like it, and uh, what you'd like to hear in the future. So, without further ado, let us welcome our regular guests, our returning champion, Dr. Gary Stickle. Hi, Gary. How are you? I'm, I'm great, and great to be back with you again. As always, his throng of adoring followers. So, Gary, we're back to the Iliad. We're continuing going chapter by chapter. Where did we leave off last time, and where are we starting today? Uh, we left off with the end of uh, Chapter 5, uh, talking about how the gods were hurt, the goddesses were hurt by uh, Diomedes. And now we're going into Chapter 6. And it was and, interesting because Diomedes was one of the characters that has seemed to have been overlooked throughout the ages. Yes. Even and, though he's, he was one of the main heroes in the Iliad, but he still has, has been downplayed. You're right. It's real. That's a very interesting thing that we've noted in the prior podcast. Also, we talked a little bit in the last episode about the goddesses, the nature of the Greek culture being so male-centric and frankly misogynistic, yet having these amazing women in their divine, in their pantheon, these great goddesses. So yeah. we talked a little bit about that last time. So start us off with chapter six. Okay, again, uh, I've been doing these synopsis from the uh, early Harvard translation of the Iliad, 1883, by uh, Lang, Leaf, and Myers. <clears throat> the little synopsis says, book six, how Diomedes and Glaucus, uh, being about to fight, were known to each other and part in friendliness, which is interesting. They're enemies, but they part in friendliness. And how Hector, the, you know, the chief defender of Troy and the son of the king and queen of Troy, uh, returns to the city of Troy to bid farewell to Andromache, his wife. <clears throat> so the chapter has the, you know, the terrible violence and uh, horror of war, but it also has these uh, really touching human elements that, uh, you know, Homer included, which uh, really, I, I think, is uh, a main reason why Homer's classics have just been so influential down through the ages and, uh, you know, upwards of 3,000 years now um, and um, been so influential because of the humanity he presents in it. Right. And we've talked about it on other podcasts, why it's important to still have his work taught and we talked about whether there uh, had been a person called homer 
belief that you have. I share with you that there there was such a being, but of course there's some questions from scholars. But nonetheless, the the idea of that these works should be taught, should continue, and the influence that they've had throughout the ages. So, <clears> well, I, I just with- I just uh, on that note, I just got a news item, and I've heard about it for a while that. Um, the African American University, Howard University, right, is uh, doing away with their classics department. That's very unfortunate that any university would do that. You know? There's been a big outcry about it, and I think it's really sad. Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, the classics has been a foundation of so much upper level learning, and we talk again. We're repeating. We've talked about this before, but uh, let's hope that that can be turned around. Yeah, I think Stephen Colbert on his uh, late night show commented on it, and he was talking about uh, how cancel culture is getting carried away and is canceling great culture. You know, <laughs> so you know. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. So let's continue on. So tell us more about chapter six. Okay, so chapter chapter six begins with the uh, the violence of the war, um, and. Um, the translation I've been reading is again Robert Fagel's. Um, so we have a little, little little technical difficulty there for a second, folks. Apologies. So Gary, I'm sorry. Pick it up where, where you left off. You were saying what uh, yeah, translation you well, used. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be um, reading from Robert Fagel's translation, 1990 of the Odyssey. I mean, excuse me, of the Iliad. Mm-hmm. And he labels the chapter "Hector Returns to Troy," which is a major part of it. <clears throat> so this is how it starts out. So the clash of the Achaean, meaning the Greek, and Trojan troops was on its own. The battle in all its fury, bearing back and forth, careening down the plain, as they sent their bronze lances hurtling side to side between the Semwazis banks and the Xanthus' swirling rapids. Interestingly, Homer keeps saying bronze weapons and bronze armor throughout the Iliad because Homer is writing in the Iron Age. Right. And so he's making it clear that he was talking about the Bronze Age, I think, by all these references to bronze, you know. It's it's an important point because of one of the things you've talked about and we've discussed on this is when this was written, can we have any indicate do we have any indications that this really was from an earlier period and and does have an historical framework? And so that's one of the things that you can point to, the fact that he points out that they used bronze weapons as opposed to what would have been if he were writing for his own age and you would presume he was he were not aware of the difference in the earlier time he would have talked more about iron weapons but he focused on the bronze and I, that's yes. significant without question you know throughout the Iliad he mentions that and then he goes on to say the uh Achaean bulwark uh giant ajax came up first before the trojan line uh, brought his men some hope, sparing the bravest man, the Thracians fielded, and so on. And 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 again, it gets violent, you know. So you know, listener discretion, uh, you know, advised. Um, and uh, so he first to hurl, great Ajax hit the ridge of the helmet, the helmet's horsehair crest, the bronze point. Again, he says bronze, stuck in. Uh, Akamas's forehead pounding through the skull, and the dark came swirling down to shroud his eyes. So it starts off with the the violence of war, mm-hmm. and um, and then with, with a shearing war cry, Diomedes killed off 
Axilus, and so on. So he talks about meeting his enemy now face to face to ward off the grisly death and so on. And so it talks about other people being killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then it goes down to brings in Menelaus, you know, the the king of Sparta and the husband of Helen that was stolen or abducted, you know, from uh, Sparta that led to the Trojan War, according right. to uh, Homer. Right. Um, but Menelaus, lord of the war cry, had caught Adrestes alive, rearing, bolting in terror down the plain. His horses snared themselves in tamarisk branches and so on. But uh, but Menelaus uh, overturns the chariot, tumbling over the wheel, pitching face down into the dusk. Above him now rose Menelaus, his spear's long shadow looming. And so uh, the uh, the Trojan begs for, uh, you know, clemency. He says, take me alive, Atreides, meaning Menelaus. Take a ransom worth my life. Treasures are piled up in my rich father's house, bronze and gold and plenty of, again, he mentions bronze, and, and plenty of well-wrought iron. He mentions iron very rarely, but he mentions it here. Mm-hmm. Father would give you anything, gladly, priceless ransom, if only I'm still alive. His pleas were moving the heart of Menelaus, but then up rushes Agamemnon, blocking his way and shouting, quote, so soft, dear brother, because Menelaus is the brother of Agamemnon. And why such concerns for our enemies? I suppose you got such tender, loving care at home from the Trojans, and so on. So he says, no baby boy still in his mother's belly, not even his escape. All alien blotted out, no tears for their lives, no markers for their graves. And the iron warrior brought his brother around, rough justice fitting too. So anyhow, Menelaus shoves Adrestes back with his fist, and Agamemnon stabs him in the flank, you know, face up the son of uh, Atreus, meaning uh, Agamemnon, dug a heel in his heaving chest and wrenched his ash spear out. Wow, now that is a heartless, merciless sequence. Yes. He's essentially, and I, the term I think you, you said that was translated was rough justice. I mean, that was some pretty rough justice. And also Agamemnon saying that no pity on any of them, any essentially any of the men of Troy, that they were just going to go full bore against all of them. Yeah. One thing that stands out to me when we talk about the Iliad and when you describe and read the passages is how much these battles in this time and certainly up to a few centuries ago or a couple centuries ago, how much these battles are individual battles. I mean, these are individual street fights to a certain extent. And by that, I mean, when we think of a World War II battle, we think of the movement of large platoons of, of troops, of armies yes. moving yes. around. But this is one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat. You're up, then you're up, then you're up. You go get him. I'm going to go get him after you. I'll take that guy. You take that guy. It's just such a different and more brutal, I mean, all war is brutal, but a very elementally brutal way of battling, guy yes. for guy. And then it switches to the Trojans, <clears throat> and uh, uh, 
but then the Trojans once again would have clambered back inside their city walls, terror struck by the Argives or the Greeks. But Helenus, Helenus's son of Priam, uh, but Helenus, excuse me, son of Priam, King Priam, best of the seers, in other words, he could foretell the future, uh, who scans flights of birds, striding up to Aeneas and Hector calling out, my captains, you bear the brunt of Troy's fighting. You are the bravest men, whatever the enterprise, pitch battle itself or plan our campaigns. Go stand your ground right here. Go through the ranks and rally our troops. But you, Hector, go back to the city. Tell your mother to gather all the noble, old, older noble women together and go to gray-eyed Athena's shrine on the city's crest. In other words, to beg her for help. Mm-hmm. Then promise to sacrifice 12 heifers in her shrine. And number 12, as I maintained before, was a sacred symbolic number. And here it is again. 12 heifers. Right. Yes. So, uh, you know, to ask if she'll have pity on Troy and if if only she'll hold Diomedes back from our holy city. So it goes on that way, you know. Right. So he sent the – so this is a seer, and they trust that this guy has had the ability in the past to foretell the best course of action. Is that what I'm hearing? Okay. Yes, and he's he's a brother of Hector. Oh, okay, okay. So that gives him even more kids, and Hector was certainly willing. So there's Hector, Paris, and which brother is this? Uh, Helenus. Helenus. Okay. Uh, it's funny. It's he's not the brother we at least that I think of when I think of the Iliad. Of course, we think of Paris. Of course, yeah, Paris being uh, a, the. The very, very determinative brother. <laughs> Do you know offhand um, how many sons? Um, yeah, Prime I think had? I think, I think uh, Homer says he, uh, Prime had fifty sons. Five zero. Yeah. No wonder he was so tired. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So sorry. Go on. And, and you just wonder that Hecuba is queen. Uh, you know, give birth to fifty. 50 yeah, babies. I mean, my God, no way. I mean, they have to be a bunch of illegitimate yeah. children and concubines. A poor woman. Yeah, there's no way. So, um, so, so anyhow, it goes okay. on. Hector obeyed his brother, um, and, uh, uh, and and then talks about you know that he rallied the troops and and uh, fought back the Greeks. The archives gave way. It says and quit the slaughter. You know. Um, then Hector turned for home, his helmet flashed. You know, Helm, uh, Homer keeps talking about the bright bronze helmet of Hector and how it keeps flashing. You know, it's mm-hmm. very, apparently very shiny. And he talks about the long, dark hide of his boss shield. The rim running the metal edge drummed his neck and ankles as he walked. So in other words, it's a huge shield. It wasn't a small shield like they showed in the movie Troy. Mm-hmm. There's a long rectangular shield covered with bull hide with a bronze, what they call boss, a, a big bronze protrusion in the middle and some bronze on it to, you know, hold off. The, but that's a Bronze Age uh, shield, you know. Right, right. So anyhow, Hector goes back. Um, and um, uh, but before he goes back, uh, Homer, or as he's going back, Homer has a. Uh, an aside or 
whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, what, do you, what do you call it in film when you have more than one plot line going along at once? Subplot. Subplot, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason he throws in, he talks about the city of Corinth um, where Sisyphus used to live. Now, Sisyphus uh, was you know, punished by Zeus. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the famous boulder, right? Yes, he had to roll yeah. a boulder up a hill in the underworld forever. You know, and then just as soon as he got the boulder to the top of the hill, he would slip and roll back down to the bottom, and he had to start all over again. That was uh, used as a, a example, or used as the central uh, story for Albert Camus in his Myth of Sisyphus, talking about the the difficulty and existential angst of modern life. I just uh, it's a book I remember from um, in my teens. So, um, well, hey, I talked yeah, about so, so that I'm um, saying that uh, that uh, myth is still very resonant for us now, right? So, so it talks about Sisyphus, um, the son of Aeolus, the ruler of the winds, mm-hmm. uh, and and he had a son called Glaucus, and then Glaucus in turn had a son called Bellerophon. So basically, this is the story of Bellerophon, who was a, a Greek hero. And uh, so uh, and Bellerophon was meant to go to uh, Lycia, and he met the king of Lycia, who gave him a royal welcome, it says. Nine days he feasted him. Nine is another sacred number. Mm-hmm. And nine oxen slaughtered. When the tenth dawn shone on her rosy red fingers, numbers number ten again, you know, mm-hmm. which is ten's another sacred number. Ten years for the Trojan War, ten years for the Odyssey voyage home. Um, and um, so the king ordered Bellerophon to kill a monster called a chimera or chimera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a grim monster sprung of the gods, nothing human. All lion in front, all snake behind, all goat between. Terrible, blasting, lethal fire at every breath. He says, but he laid her low, obeying signs of the gods. And um, next he he fought the Soyemi, tribes have been on glory, roughest battle of men he ever uh, entered. Uh, then for the third test, three being another sacred number. So here he's seen all these sacred mm-hmm. numbers, you know. Sure. 12, 9, 10, and 3. Mm-hmm. Then for the third test, he brought the Amazons down, a match for men at war. Well, we can't let that one go by without giving them a round of applause. Not the at the bringing them down, because for those of us who, for those of you who listen to our other podcast, Make Matriarchy Great Again, we talk about the Amazons quite a lot. They are our symbols. They are our uh, inspiration. But just the mention of them, we have to give them a little shout out here. So go on. Yeah. Sorry. So anyhow, um, Bellerophon uh, completes his task, you know, and and then he uh, the, the king offers his daughter's hand in marriage, mm-hmm. and he marries her. And get this, Bellerophon has three children. Again, the number three. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So let me ask you two questions there. So do you have a theory yet for what each of the numbers represents in this sacred symbolic number system? And then second, I want to ask you about the uh, Kimura uh, and just 
we see these kinds of mythical beasts come up in uh, Greek myth, but in the context of some realistic stories, right? And just wonder what you think they mean. So do you have any kinds of theories on what each of the numbers means? Do you have an idea of what, why they're being used? Why do we hear three and 12 and nine? Why did they show up? I think because uh, they believe that the numbers had intrinsic powers, like we still kind of do today because we talk about Friday the 13th or we talk about third time's the charm, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we still kind of have this idea that numbers may have, you know, uh, some sort of influential powers. But I think the number 12, this is just speculation on my part, I think the number 12 represents the 12 Olympian gods. Mm-hmm. The number nine he mentions here, I think, represents the nine muses, the goddesses of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And number three represents the three main gods, Zeus, who ruled the heavens, Poseidon, who ruled the seas, and Hades, who ruled the underworld. So it's all part of a sacred symbolic number system, I think. Okay, and we, we can, we've talked about that, and we'll certainly come back to that again uh, in digging that out a little bit further. But... What do you think of the mythic beasts? You and I have talked uh, off air about these sorts of uh, creatures, dragons and things of this sort, what they could represent or what reality they could have represented and the kinds of animals that could have been confronted. What do you, what do you think of where, why do these beasts appear? Do you think there was some kind of animal that, these were based on or this is purely well, there's been, there's been speculation on that like the cyclops um that they they found uh the skull of a mammoth in greece and and it has a hole in the skull and so they there's been some speculation that that inspired uh the one-eyed giant you know cyclops mm-hmm. i don't know that for sure um but you know it's interesting speculation um, right but I think the reason the monsters are created is so you can have heroes who can defeat them and inspire people, you know, with their exploits. So we have this subplot happening here. And why, why do we take this little path? Why does Homer take us? No, I don't, I don't know. To be honest. Just to give color, perhaps to flush it out from a writer's yeah. standpoint, perhaps. Okay. So please continue. So then the story goes on and, and you know, Hector's on his way back to Troy and, uh, and he, he wants to meet up with his wife and his, his little son, the baby. And here's here shows Homer's humanity. And I'm quoting now. And now when Hector reached the Skian gates, which are the, the main gates of Troy, mm-hmm. and the great oak, there's a great oak. Oh, sorry about this. So uh, can you repeat the uh, Hector story, Gary? Yeah. And so now I'm reading from uh, uh, translation, Vegel's translation. And now when Hector reached the skin gates, and the skin gates are the main gates of Troy, and the great oak, there was a, a great oak tree outside, which becomes very important because at the end of uh, the Iliad, Hector and Achilles uh, fight their great duel in front of that oak tree. Uh, so anyhow, when he reaches the great oak, the wives and daughters of Troy came rushing up around him. And I think this is so poignant. Asking about their sons, brothers, friends, and husbands. But Hector told them only, pray to the gods. All the Trojan women, one after another, hard sorrows were hanging over many. 
Mm, very touching very, to me. Yeah, that, a very deeply touching moment, sure. And, and very human with, you know, the wives and mothers and sisters and so on coming out asking about their loved ones, you know, as, as yeah, they would. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And uh, and then Hector didn't have anything more for him than except to say, pray to the gods that they succeed somehow, you know. And so and soon Hector came, came to Prime's Palace, the magnificent structure. Uh, and then he and, uh, and then get this, he says, the sons of Prime slept beside their wedded wives, facing these, opening out across the inner courtyard, lay the 12 sleeping chambers of Prime's daughters. So Prime had 50 sons, but 12 daughters. A little gender imbalance there. Okay. But but again, that's sacred number 12, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, it seems a little skewed that he would have so many sons yes. and 12 daughters, but okay. Yes. And so then he, he asked his uh, mother to go to Athena's shrine and so on and, and sacrifice the 12 heifers and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, now, mother, go to the queen of plunder's shrine, meaning Athena, and I'll go hunt for Paris, summon him to fight. So what he wants to do um, is um, you know, try to motivate Paris to fight Menelaus because Paris ran away from Menelaus, if you remember. Right, right. And uh, and which is very cowardly. And <clears throat> Hector wants him to stand up for his honor, re- re- retrieve his honor, but also stand up for Troy. <clears throat> so this is another touching part of right. that. And he says, for I must go home to see my people first to visit my dear wife and baby son. You know, and um, and then he's talking to Helen of Troy. And so she says, my dear brother, dear to me, bitch that I am. It's interesting Homer says that of her, you know, mm-hmm. and bitch that I am, vicious, scheming, horror to freeze the heart. Oh, how I wish that the first day my mother brought me into light, some black whirlwind had rushed me out in the mount- into the mountains. Wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he says, um, whore than I am. Homer has her refer to herself as a whore. Wow. And this blind, mad Paris. And then she says, oh, the two of us, meaning Paris and her. Zeus planned a killing doom for us both. So even generations still unborn, we will live in song. How about that? You know, again, Homer has his moments of tender humanity towards her and towards women generally, but there again, that that kind of comes through that sort of um, disrespect of sorts for, or more than of sorts, a disrespect for her specifically around her gender. Uh, I think it's interesting that that comes through there, that sort of Greek notion of it. Um, Let's, uh uh-huh, go ahead. And then another, uh, uh, he, he asked the women where, it, you know, he goes home to his house and he doesn't find her. So he asked uh, the ladies there, you know, the servants, come, please tell me the truth now, women. Where where is it? Uh, where has a, a drama key gone? And they said she's gone to the huge gate tower of Troy, which is right beside the, the main entrance, the main skin gates of Troy. So it says that Dad Hector spun and rushed from his house until he reached the skin gates. 
There his warm, generous wife came running up to meet him, Andromache, the daughter of gallant-hearted Etion. And, uh, and since his daughter had married Hector, helmed in bronze, she joined him now and followed in his steps. And a servant was holding their boy against her breasts, the first flush of life, only a baby, Hector's son, radiant as a star, which I think is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then Hector would always call the boy Scamandrius. There's a Scamander River near Troy. But the townspeople called him Astyanax, Lord of the City. Well, Anax means Lord or Ruler mm-hmm. in Bronze Age Greece. So that's why they call him Astyanax. And then, it, and then Homer says, since Hector was the lone defense of Troy, the great man of war, and so on, you know? Well, that is a good, let's stop there. Uh, I also want to just mention that Andromache was also a name of an Amazon man fighter. So I wonder, I was, I just happened to work with that name yesterday in something I was writing. And it makes me think of why the Greeks would have top, taken it or if that were a name, a Trojan had named their children after, because the idea of the Amazons having a connection to the Trojans. But on that note, let's stop there. Uh, we're almost at our out of time. Yeah. So let's stop there. We're going to pick it up uh, from that point forward on our next uh, episode. But it's okay. As always, this is uh, just wonderful to go through. It's wonderful to listen to Homer. And uh, let's put out there a request that these academic institutions continue to teach the classics. It's absolutely yeah, vital. I do away with teaching this uh, epic, which has so inspired people, uh, not because of the violence, but because of its humanity. It speaks to uh, all of us, you know? It's such an, a range of great literature, great art to banish, and it's a terrible idea. So... Uh, on that note, I just want to thank, again, as always, our own Dr. Gary Stickle. Gary, thank you. Thank you. I'm great. And thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, The Parallax. We are covering Classical Studies 101. We're covering the Iliad. And we will be back again with more. Take care. 